on page 4. My wife turned there. She said, two verses. Is this going to be a five-minute sermon? Which I replied, don't you wish? Uh, if you do not have a Bible with us and with you and like to open, you'll find pew Bibles in the pew in front of you. Let me say this. If you're a student or someone else that perhaps doesn't have uh, um, a good readable translation, translation of the Bible, then take one. Pull one out of the pew, take it home with you, and uh, we hope that will be an encouragement to you. But if you're using one of those pew Bibles, you'll find our text on page 976. As we come um, to this text this morning, let's, let's pause and, and pray. Let's seek the Lord, the one who's given us this. We need his guidance and his encouragement and him to open our eyes. So let's pray together. Father, we do come to you. Um, this is your word to us. And we pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts that we might see it and understand it. That you might speak to us by your spirit. Father, your words have power. We pray that you would apply those to us right now. We're in need of a word from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we're beginning a series on Ephesians uh, that has surprised me in this past week. As I sat down to kind of think through where this whole series will go and how long we'll spend here, we're going to spend several months in Ephesians. And that that was a surprise to me because I I didn't expect that that we would spend that much time in this one book. But as I've spent time in this letter, I've just started to see more and more how rich this is and how much this really has to say to us as a community. So we're going to be in the book of Ephesians for a while. And we're going to be asking um, this question week in and week out from different angles. What does the, what is the letter of Ephesians have to say to us about becoming a community of grace? What does it have to say to us about becoming, becoming more, continuing to be, becoming a community of grace? Uh, one encouragement for you would just be that you'd sit down at some point in, this, in these next couple weeks and read straight through the, the letter to the Ephesians. That's the best way to get a handle on what Paul is saying, to start to get a sense of the flow of the letter. So since we're going to be spending much time together as a community in this, I'd encourage you to spend some time on your own doing that. And if you're looking uh, for resources to help you do that, there's one commentary I would recommend to you. Uh, it's by um, John Stott, and it's called The Message of Ephesians. In the Bible Speaks Today series, we're going to um, put some references for materials that might be helpful for you on our website, so you can, you can find it there. But if you do get this commentary on Acts by John Stott, you'll notice over the weeks as, as you listen to these sermons what a, what a profound influence I've had on John Stott. So um, if you wonder which way the influence went, no, but it is, it is a helpful resource and I hope it will be helpful for you. Well... This letter to the Ephesians, this book of the Bible, it really is a letter. It really is correspondence written by Paul to a group of people. Uh, and it got me thinking about letters. You know, probably not many of us still receive letters. Now, we still get a lot of mail. still got lots of stuff that show up in your mailbox. But how long has it been since you've had an actual letter from somebody that didn't want money? <laughs> somebody that, you know, you didn't owe money to? Somebody that... It wasn't just, not even just writing a thank you note, but somebody that really stopped and wrote you a letter. 
to speak to you. I got one earlier this summer from a former student, and it's probably been months and months and months since I had one before that. Uh, when I was, uh, the summer after my freshman year in college, I was a, a counselor at a camp out in the woods for 11 weeks, and, and mail took on just a whole new meaning to me, uh, that there would be this mail call every day, and your hopes would rise and fall based on whether or not there was actually a letter from you from, from home. It was just this huge deal. It reminded you there was this outside world, and it reminded you that there really were people out there uh, that remembered you, that still cared for you. You had a family who was thinking about you. And if you've ever been in a situation like that where mail is suddenly so precious, you open it up, and even the introduction, right, dear Brandon, dear, you just... You just chew on it. You just suddenly those common words just have such new meaning for for us. Well, we're going to be looking at the beginning of this letter this morning, the salutation, the greeting, and in, and in one sense that's like picking apart, dear Brandon. Now, on the other hand, though, for Paul, who's writing this letter, even his even his salutation, even his greeting to these people he's writing to is is loaded with. Um, some real content and real meaning and what I think should be real encouragement for us. So in this greeting this morning, these first two verses, we're going to look at three things. They're going to help set the tone for some background on the letter. Uh, Who the author is, who we are, and what we need. Those are the three things we're going to look at. Who's the author, who are we, and what is it that we need? So first, who the author is. Uh, You'll notice, very first word, that the letter claims to be by the Apostle Paul. And for um, approximately 1,800 years in church history, nobody really stopped to question or doubt that. Now, if you've taken classes at William & Mary on New Testament scholarship, if you've been exposed to some of the readings, you'll know that since the 19th century, with the rise of historical criticism, that there's been a lot of doubt shed on that. Could it really have been Paul who wrote this letter? There's a few reasons. I'll just pick out a, a couple to share. One is that in the book of Ephesians, there's, a, there's some distinctive vocabulary and style that are, that are different from a lot of the ways Paul expresses himself in other letters. And some people have read that and said, well, I mean, here's 23 words that he uses in, in Ephesians that he doesn't use anywhere else. Surely this must be at the hand of another author. The style is a little more flowery. It's, it's fuller. Um, the first two paragraphs in your English translation from verse 3 down through verse 14 in Greek is one sentence. Okay? So it's, it's, it's fuller than Paul's... Um, normal style of writing. So some people have caused, that's caused some people to doubt whether or not it was actually him. Some people have looked at this and said, well, if you look in um, the book of Acts in chapters 19 through 20, you see some of the history of Paul with the church in Ephesus. And you find out that he spent three years there. It's one of the longest places he ever was with the church. But if you read the letter to Ephesians, you don't see any of the personal greetings that you find in some of his other letters. There's none of this, you know, please say hello to so-and-so for me, remind so-and-so of the, of the mission that's been given to them. It, in that sense, it's very impersonal. There's no personal greeting. So some folks have said, well, surely that means that it really wasn't Paul because it was someone who didn't know the Ephesians who was writing to them. We're going we're gonna to pick up that point in a few minutes when we talk about the audience. Um, there's some theological distinctives about the book of Ephesians. Unlike some of Paul's other books, he doesn't really uh, spend any time talking about the fact that Jesus is coming again. He speaks a lot more about reconciliation between people than he does about justification or reconciliation with God. So I I just want to bring that up just to say if you've been exposed to some of that and some of the reading that you've done, um, just know that 
I think at the end of the day, obviously scholars come down on different angles on this. And I don't think any of those arguments really, um, really does carry the day. From the earliest days of the church in the second century, we have people commenting on this letter written by Paul. It's been the undisputed testimony of the church from the beginning that this really does come from his hand. And it's not that surprising that uh, one writer could sound different in more than one letter. How many novelists do we, do we read? How many books do we have where the tone can be very different from one work to another? F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, biblical scholar, said this, and I think it's an interesting comment on the question. He said, the man who could write Ephesians must have been the apostles equal, if not as superior, in mental stature and spiritual insight. And of such a second Paul, early Christianity has no knowledge. You know, what's he saying? Ephesus, uh, the letter to the people in Ephesus is a masterpiece in the Bible. And we have no record of anyone who could have possibly composed this other than the person that it says wrote it in verse 1, Paul. Now, who is this Paul? Formerly, he was known as Saul. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, then you know some of the story about Paul, that he was someone who was violently opposing the early church. People were becoming Christians, and he was... Um, doing all that he could to stamp out the rise of Christianity. But now here we have him writing this letter to the people in Ephesus, actually promoting this. How does that happen? Um, Paul becomes someone who has tasted of the grace that he begins to speak of. You know what it's like when you are in the presence of somebody who's just been gripped by something they've experienced? This past week, many of you are going to be aware of the death of Steve Irwin, also known as the Crocodile Hunter. Now, if you don't know who the Crocodile Hunter is, um, he has his own show on TV, and he's this Australian guy that uh, wrestles crocodiles and large snakes and uh, has done a lot to sort of raise awareness for preservation of animals and habitats. And But if you've ever seen his show, you know that he is... It's like he was continually on speed. He was the most excited guy you've ever seen about wildlife. And every time you know, he's on the show, he's, he's wrestling this alligator, and he's holding him up, and he's saying, look at this. Have you ever seen teeth like this? You know, he was amazed by the things that, uh, that he was describing to us. He was somebody who had been just gripped by the wonder and the majesty of, of, of what he loved, of the wildlife around him. And he drew our attention in to say, look at that. Now, I'm going to go on record being the first pastor to draw a comparison between the Apostle Paul and the crocodile hunter. <laughs> but here is, here is formerly Saul, now Paul, a persecutor of the church, who has now been gripped by the very thing that he was trying to stamp out. And time and again in the writings of Paul, and we're going to see time and again in, here in this letter to the Ephesians, you see Paul saying, look at this. Can you believe this? Look what God has done. Uh, look what it, Paul says about himself in this next phrase. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, the, the word apostle in the New Testament is used in a couple different ways. Occasionally, uh, not very often, but occasionally it's used in, in a pretty broad sense as just a messenger, which is what the word literally means. For instance, a church, some churches might appoint messengers to go and preach the gospel. Paul was first appointed by the church in Antioch to go with um, others to go preach the gospel, to travel around as missionaries. But usually in the New Testament, the word apostle has a more technical sense to it. It's someone who's actually been commissioned by Jesus as an authoritative representative of him 
to bring his word to the world. Apostles is what he first calls the disciple, the twelve disciples, when he calls them and sets them aside. And it's what Paul considered himself to be. It's like an ambassador. It's an authorized representative. So if you think about what ambassadors do, America has ambassadors in other countries. We send them over there. What do they do? They represent our country to another country. And faithful ambassadors only speak the words they've been entrusted to speak. Right? We don't send ambassadors to other countries to begin making up policy on their own for America. Instead, what do they do? They communicate our policy to the rest of the world. And if they, they, if they don't do that, well, then the president's going to recall them. But they represent our country to someone else, and they only have authority because of the one they represent. And Paul is saying that about himself. I'm somebody with authority, an authority that's been given to me. He says that this authority comes not from men. It's not just simply that his church has set him aside. He says, by the will of God. Uh, he's expanding on what he talks about in other places. Here, Galatians 1, 11, and 12, here's what he says on a similar theme. He says, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And we just have to deal with the fact that Paul is claiming real authority for himself, real and in many ways unique authority. And the thing is, we all have authorities that we listen to. There are people in our world, in our life, that when they, when they speak, we listen. Um, this morning, I was trying to, some of you may recall the old commercial, you know, when we speak, people listen. I had to pull to find out what that was from. The deacons think it was from E.F. Hutton, so maybe some of you remember that commercial. I, I got on Google this morning to try to track down that quote, and I found articles of people saying this from the Sierra Club, the American Medical Association, National Education Association, and UNICEF. When we speak, people listen. Okay, there are authorities that speak into our lives that we listen to. And who are yours? For some of you, maybe it's your parents. Is it your friends? Is it your professors at school? Who is it that you really trust? Who is it that you listen to to tell you what is true about yourself and about the world that you live in? Who do you trust? Who do you listen to? Now, here's the thing about Paul's claim that we have to wrestle with. Is it, is it really true? Is he who he said he was? Uh, some of you might be familiar with C.S. Lewis's description of Jesus. He said he was either a liar, a lunatic, or, a lo or the Lord. Right? You can't be who Jesus claims to be. You can't go around saying the kinds of things that he said and it just be sort of a, a neutral experience. You've got to either accuse him of lying or being crazy or really bow down to him and admit that he, that he is who he said he is, that he is the Lord. And we've got the same situation with Paul. Liar, lunatic, or apostle. <laughs> who, who is this man? We have to wrestle with the fact that he really does claim to be speaking God's words to us. Now, let me just give you an, uh, a thought. Some of us are unconvinced by this. Maybe some of us are here kind of wondering what we're doing in church this morning to begin with, but certainly not sure that when we open up the Bible that we're actually reading something that God's given us, that we can really trust Paul the way he assumes that we should but let me just ask you this question. Is it just possible that Paul might be exactly who he says he is? Is it just possible that what he claims, that he's actually bringing us a word from God, might really be true? Now that's it's an astounding claim. 
And it's not something that you can just sort of let slide by. Um, you can't read Paul and just think, well, he's got some good moral advice here and there. Um, he's got some interesting spiritual things to say occasionally, but, but there's lots about him that I, that I don't agree with or I don't like. I, I would challenge you. I, I think you have to take Paul all or nothing. If he's really who he says he is, if he's really somebody who's been given the words of God to bring to us, uh, you can't really ride the fence on what the Bible is. Is it what it claims to be or is it not? Paul thinks that God told him this. Okay, now, either, going back to our, our little framework here, either Paul's lying to us, he never had any visions, God never spoke to him, or um, he's a very disturbed and crazy man, right? What do we do when people say, God spoke to me and told me to tell you this, right? We turn around and walk in the other direction as quickly as we can. He's crazy, or he's lying to us, or he's telling us the truth that he's really who he says that he is. But you've got to wrestle with his claim for authority. But let me just ask you this. If, if you're unconvinced by him, maybe you're a skeptic, maybe you're an agnostic, maybe you're asking some version of, what if he's wrong? What if this isn't true? Um, let me just flip the question around. What if, what if it is true? What if he is telling the truth? Have you, have, you th- have you thought it through? Have you wrestled with this? Because if Paul is saying, this is a word from God about who God is, about what the world is, about who you are, and about how you can actually have life, then doesn't that bear listening to? Don't dismiss it too quickly. But let me ask you this uh, question or this challenge. Maybe you're somebody who says, I am a Christian. I'm following Jesus. I think that Paul is who he says he is. I think the Bible is what it says it is. Um, But let me just ask you this. If that's the case, is it changing your life in any noticeable ways? I've got a friend, uh, several friends, who are caught up in fantasy football. Okay, now, for those of you that don't know what that is, I'll try to explain. I barely understand myself. But the idea is this, that people uh, at the start of football season, they come up with uh, team rosters for themselves. And they choose players from all across the team spectrum, and they keep, they keep touch in touch with their statistics over the course of the year to find out whose team actually won. Now, one of these friends of mine spent seven hours the other day at someone's house going through fantasy football draft. I can't imagine anything more painful myself. But he went through this. Okay, so what are these people doing? They're, they're putting together these imaginary teams. Now, that's a fine hobby. But let me ask you this. It is. I, I, really, I really do believe that. But are we playing at fantasy, at fantasy faith? Okay. Sunday mornings, parts of our life, parts of our week. Um, is Christianity something, those of you who really claim this is what I believe, is this something that is really putting you out on the field? Okay. Fantasy football, you spend your time sitting on your living room couch. Are we on the field? Is it something that's engaging all of our life? This is really true. Is it really having an impact? Is it really changing us? Is it really sending us out into the world? Okay, who wrote the letter? Who was it, Paul? Second point, who are we? Or excuse me, who we are. The letter is written, it says, to the people in Ephesus. Now back to this initial issue about why is it too impersonal if it's written to the people in Ephesus. Um, It's an interesting point because, for instance... um, Tom Darnell, our former pastor, is back here. He's here this morning. He was doing a wedding in town this weekend. And if you've gotten to run into Tom, 
He doesn't say, greetings, people. What does he say? Steve, so good to see you. Gene, how are you doing? He doesn't just shake our hands. He comes and hugs us. Why? Because he knows us. Because he was with us 40 years. Because he has real relationships with us. And you look at the, the letter of the Ephesians, and again, you just don't really see much of that in Paul. And here's probably the reason. The, um, the words in Ephesus don't appear in several of the earliest Greek manuscripts we have of this book. Seems like, most likely, it was added in later years because it was perhaps being circulated without a title to it. And as Paul's letters started to be collected, they needed a way to distinguish it. It may well be that there was a prominent copy of this in the library at Ephesus. But likely what is happening here is that this is a letter that was meant to be circulated to a lot of different people. In the book of Colossians, you hear Paul say things like this. He says, take this letter that I wrote you and make sure you send it over to the Laodiceans and make sure you get their letter and read it. Okay? These were not just written for one church, but they were circulated around. In fact, one, one possibility is that many copies of this letter would have been made with sort of the blank, dear blank. You know, insert your name here. And as messengers would bring these letters to the churches, they, then this, that might have been filled in for to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Colossae. We don't know, but, it's, but likely what's happened is this really is a letter that was meant for people all over the region around Ephesus, which was a central city in Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey. So this letter would have circulated all of them. So it's no surprise that we don't see some of the more personal greetings because Paul had a wider audience in, uh, in mind. And so just as these churches might insert their own name, maybe we can too, for the saints who are in Williamsburg. Uh, Next thing, the word that hits us is to the saints who are in Ephesus. Saint means that someone who's been holy, who is holy, who has been set apart. Now, that's not a term that we use a lot, or rarely very favorably. Um, when you think of the word saint, maybe you think of these revered believers in the past. Um, sometimes it's it's used as an insult. You know, well, I'm I'm no saint. What are you saying? You know, I'm no prude. Um, Certainly not a term that most of us think of very often in regards to ourselves. But in the New Testament, the word saint is a term for everybody who's put their faith in Jesus. And it says much more about what God has done for you than it does about your moral uprightness or your ability to get your life right or straight. If you're a Christian, then you are a saint. You've been set aside. You've been made holy by Jesus. Now that brings up a lot of questions. If I'm a saint, if I'm holy, if I'm set apart, how, how exactly did that happen? If I'm a saint, what does that imply about how God now sees me? And if I'm a saint, what does that mean about how my life should look now? What it's for, how I should live, how I should interact with God and with other people? These are all questions that Paul's going to take up in the course of the letter to the Ephesians. These are the things we're going to be talking about. The letter to the Ephesians, to the, to the Williamsburgers, to us. Uh, this whole letter is about what it means to be a community of saints, or to put it in terms of the point for our whole series, what it means for us, for our church, to be a community of grace. That's what we're going to be talking about. And then finally refers uh, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. The Greek word here can have the sense of either faithfulness, as in faithful response, or someone who has faith. Commentators I've been, have read have said that most likely here it's actually better translated as people who have faith. In other words, believers, to the believers who are in Ephesus. Um, and he goes on to say that these are believers in Christ. Now that's not just in Christ as the object of our faith. 
though he certainly is. But it's in Christ in the sense of this whole new world that we've been brought into. A world that finds its fullness in Christ. Again, going back to F.F. Bruce, commentator. He says, the phrase in Christ is incorporative. That is to say, it does not point to Jesus Christ as the object of belief. But implies that the saints and believers are united with him. Partakers of his new life. And again, that's something we're going to talk a lot about over the course of this series. And then finally, last point. What do we need? What do these verses in the salutation tell us about what we need? Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, what is it? It's God's unmerited favor. Now again, this is a letter. And uh, contrary to, again, most of the letters we receive, bills, magazines. This is a letter that comes speaking something on our behalf. Something for us. Went out to my mailbox the other day. It was full of catalogs, and my first thought was, good, no bills. Now, all those people in the catalogs, they want my money too, but I don't already owe it to them, so that felt freeing. But Paul begins his letter also by reminding us that we are no longer people who are marked by a debt that is held against us. We are no longer people who owe. We are no longer people who have to pay the bill. And we're people who have received something the grace that's brought to us in Jesus Christ. It also talks about peace. Now, in the biblical sense of the word peace, going back to the Old, Old Testament word for peace, shalom, it's, it's just much bigger than what we usually think of as peace. We often think about peace as the absence of hostility. Okay, We're at peace if nobody's fighting. We're at peace at the family dinner if nothing gets thrown, <laughs> if nobody gets you know pushed out of their high chair. Not that those things happen in my house, but... What do we say about peace in the Middle East right now? What would it look like? Well, what we tend to think is if everybody lowers their guns, if we stop shooting. The biblical picture of peace is much greater than this. It's not just lowering your guns. It's embracing. It's restoration. One writer has defined this idea of peace, shalom, as universal flourishing. It's much bigger. It's much greater than simply the absence of hostility. And Paul is reminding us that in our relationship with God, it's much greater now than simply your debt has been removed. Though that's certainly true. You've been brought into a relationship of peace with God. Of flourishing, of connection, of forgiveness, of healing. It's much more than simply God's wrath is turned away. It does mean that. But we who are enemies have now been embraced. We've now been brought into the family. We're actually adopted by him. And Paul again goes on for the rest of this letter to unfold what does peace really look like. Chapters 1 through 3 talk about the grace and peace that we receive from God. And then chapters 4 through 6 talk about what grace and peace are now going to look like in our relationships with each other. And then finally, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. From God our Father, the one who loves us rightly, the one who cares for us. I feel like every time we bring up the word father, we need to say something like this. Remember that our picture of what a father is starts with God's grace and love towards us and works backwards. Some of us are hung up by the fact that we feel like we don't even know what the word father means because of our own experience of being fathered. We need to hear that God, our good father, reaches us out to us in Jesus 
and love and, com- and care and compassion. Grace and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord is again a word of authority. The one who rightly leads us. The one who does not abuse his power over us but uses his position and his authority for our good, for our flourishing, for our peace. Let me just conclude with this question. Are we ready, are we expectant as a church, as a community of people, to hear what God has to tell us in the book of Ephesians? That together we'd be able to, in this book, as a community, look at what's it going to mean for us to be a community of grace? What's it going to mean for us to respond to that? To let it really sink into our lives? And I think if we're willing to do that, then suddenly the book of Ephesians for us is going to become a letter that's really bursting with relevance for us. As we together learn more and more about what it means to be a community of grace, a community that's been touched by the grace and peace that come to us from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have not remained silent and far off, but you have spoken to us through your word. You have made yourself known because there's no other way we could know you unless you approach us, and you've done exactly that. Father, we pray that in our study of Ephesians that you would open this book to us and use it to teach us more and more about what it does mean for us to become more and more a community of grace touched by you, and that we might be salt and light in this world, that we might show that grace to all of Williamsburg, and that you might be exalted in our lives, in our church, 